Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group and we're starting a new book. It's titled The Six Sense Spaces, Volume 9. It's part of this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. The way we start this class is we start out with a brief meditation just to prepare the mind and then we move into studying chapters from this book. Each week we explore 10 different chapters. And while that might sound like a lot of chapters, some of these chapters are just one page or two pages long. There's not really any chapters more than a few pages long. So we actually, after meditation, we have a student who reads the chapter. Then I'll share any teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. If this is the first time you're joining us, no worries. You'll be able to join us for meditation. We're actually display the chapters on the screen and we'll be reading those as part of the class. So you'll be able to come right into class and actually start learning right away from day one. But if you would like to attend future classes, what you might decide to do is actually download these books and read them prior to class. So that way, when you come to class, you'll actually maybe have some questions or things that you've been thinking about and things that you would like to ask questions about to get clarification. You may even decide to read before and after class. So I'd like to welcome all of you. And if you fall into that category where you would like to download these books, you can go to buddhadailywisdom.com and you can see the link for free books and download them from there. So welcome. Let's go ahead and have our meditation where we'll just do a brief meditation. I won't even really do much guidance, but just to kind of clear the mind and prepare it for our class today, which will help you to retain the teachings a bit more. And that way, as you retain the teachings for longer, then you'll actually be able to practice them in your daily life. So if you'd like to join for meditation, just go ahead and get a comfortable position, whether that's seated, standing, or lying. And then once your body's comfortable, just start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, taking some nice gradual breaths. I'm going to do some chanting to ease us into meditation. You're welcome to join along if you know these chants. And then I'll be back with some guidance. Sāmi 
Supatipano Makawato Sawaka Sanko Sankang Namami Napmorasapakawato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorasapakawato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorasapakawato Arahato Samasamputasa Itipiso Mahakawa Arahang Samasamuto We chacharanang samuno Sakato roka vito Anu tero purisa Damasati satatawa manu sanang Oto Pakawati Okay, you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Establishing a nice, steady, consistent breath. Breathing in and out. Start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. This is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Breathing in and out. As the mind moves off the breath, wherever you observe that, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out.
Canon in English. Uh, Miranda and Nick are our moderators today. They've organized so that we can have students individually read the individual chapters, starting with chapter one, and then after somebody reads, I'll go ahead and share some teachings on that particular chapter and then open up to any questions that you guys might have. For those of you guys that might be joining us for the first time, you can observe here how there's a chapter then there's a reference going back to the original source text, and then there's explanations or further commentary that I've provided in order to help you understand each chapter. And this is what you can read if you read prior to coming to class, and then that way you can develop any questions that you need clarification on. So I'll go ahead and turn the class over to all of you, specifically Miranda and Nick, to guide us through volunteers reading each chapter. Um, I will be reading the first chapter, sir. 
um, the six sense bases. Monks, there are these six sense bases. What six? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. When monks, a noble disciple, understands as they really are the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of these six sense bases, then he is called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer, no longer bound to the netherworld, fixed in destiny with Nibbana enlightenment as his destination. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the first chapter just starts out with a general teaching on what are the six sense bases. These are the eyes, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. These are what we refer to more specifically as the six internal sense bases. And in today's class, you'll learn about the internal sense bases and the external sense bases. And here the Buddha is explaining that a person who's in the first stage of enlightenment would understand what these sense bases are. Because in that first stage of enlightenment, there's a number of teachings that someone needs to have developed and understood and practiced in order to get to that first stage. And for somebody who's in that first stage of enlightenment, the Buddha is explaining here that they're fixed in destination. Uh, meaning that once you attain that first stage of enlightenment, you will attain enlightenment in no more than seven rebirths. You may even move through, you know, going from this life, going into the first stage, second, third, fourth, and actually attaining enlightenment in that fourth stage. But in that first stage of enlightenment, should somebody die, they're going to come back no more than seven times before they ultimately get to enlightenment. These sense bases that the Buddha is talking about the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. These are the six ways that the mind is craving or yearning or longing for a certain central desire. This is how discontentedness comes into the mind, that the mind has this yearning, this longing, chasing after the objects of its affection, where it wants agreeable things in order to arise pleasant feelings. And if it gets what it is craving and yearning for, then it experiences these conditioned pleasant feelings but if it doesn't get something agreeable and it gets something disagreeable through these six sense bases then it's going to end up experiencing painful feelings and as we go in today's class you're going to learn about like i mentioned the external sense bases which through the eye which is the internal sense base the mind is craving forms to see certain forms agreeable forms and that's where you're arising conditioned pleasant feelings but when you see disagreeable forms that's where the mind then experiences painful feelings and then with the ear it's the same thing agreeable and disagreeable sounds with the nose it's agreeable and disagreeable odors with the tongue it's agreeable and disagreeable flavors with the body it's agreeable and disagreeable physical objects that are touching the body in the mind are mental objects, things that are in the mind. So just giving you an example here is if you see something with the eyes, you see a beautiful human being, a handsome human being, your mind might crave to talk to this person and have them as your boyfriend or girlfriend. And then if they are interested in you, you get these conditioned pleasant feelings. Whereas if they turn you down and they're not interested in you, you experience this disagreeable aspect of this situation and now you have painful feelings. Another example might be with the ear. If you hear pleasing music and something that you agree with, you will experience these pleasant feelings. But then if you hear music that 
you don't like and that's disagreeable, then you experience these painful feelings. The nose is odors and the tongue or flavors, bodily contact in the mind. There's various things that you can trace back your discontentedness to when the mind is experiencing those pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. You can actually trace it back to specific sense bases in certain external sense bases as well. Here where the Buddha is explaining that a noble disciple, which is a very close student who's studying diligently, understands as they really are the gratification. The gratification is the central desire that's in the mind. This is how the mind craves and longs and yearns for pleasant feelings. It wants gratification through these six sense bases. The danger is that by allowing the mind to long and yearn through the six sense bases, the danger is that you're gonna experience discontentedness. It's only a matter of time. If central desire is still in the mind, there's going to be discontentedness and that's the danger. The escape that he says that you should understand is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the escape hatch. This is what gets you out of this constant cycle of longing and yearning with central desire for gratification, experiencing those pleasant feelings, those conditioned pleasant feelings. Then when those don't exist, the mind goes to this danger of this painful feelings. Then what you do is you train the mind through this eightfold path. This is the escape and how you eliminate central desire in the mind so that it no longer longs through these six sense bases. Because as long as it's doing that, it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness. This is one of the fetters as part of the 10 fetters that need to be eliminated in order to experience enlightenment. So it's a pollution of mind. It's a taint. It's a fetter, a ball and chain that's keeping you in this cycle of rebirth, continuing to experience discontentedness. So by understanding the six sense bases, both internal and external, you'll be more aware of it. And now you can kind of watch over the mind and have mindfulness or awareness of mind where you're guarding these six sense bases. And now when you have that awareness of mind, you can restrain the mind, you can control the mind, you can have this mental discipline but it takes practice to build that up. But we're gonna be exploring that more as we go in today's class. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Jan has her hand raised, let's go to her. Thank you, and uh, hello teacher David. Um, I was thinking about this this week after reading this and I, I was thinking about how there are things that maybe they should be innocent or kind of neutral, but you still have a reaction to it. I was wondering about that. For example, I was thinking about an apple, you know, an apple you should feel neutral about, I think, right? But I don't feel neutral about apples because of past experiences I had. I grew up wearing braces and I couldn't eat apples and they caused a lot of problems for me. And so I have a kind of a bad reaction to seeing an apple you know and I, I was thinking you know that there must be many things like this that you know you, you could just have a neutral reaction um i was thinking about this this week and i was thinking about um why we have a positive or a reaction to things that might just be neutral right and example was um, an apple. Many people like apples, but I've had bad past experience with apples, so I don't like them. You know, but I feel like it should be a neutral thing. I should just 
see it right not worry about it anymore um, and that there might must be many things like that where you could have a neutral reaction to something but because of your past you have this it, it colors your reaction your perception of things yeah so as long so, as um, oh sorry go ahead yeah. No, I'm just, you know, wondering if you have any guidance about this, you know, not beyond noticing when you have these bad reactions and trying to get back to a neutral reaction. Yeah. So what you're going for is not a reaction, but a response, because the reaction is going to be out of that craving, anger and ignorance, typically. So when the mind's reacting, it's usually not doing so with wisdom, where a response, a mind's going to have wisdom there. So once the wisdom comes on board, now the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As long as there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, there's going to be certain things that are agreeable to the mind and certain things that are disagreeable to the mind. But as you train the mind and you eliminate more and more of the craving, desire, attachment, there's no longer agreeable and disagreeable things in the mind because the mind doesn't have craving for one thing versus another. So all that disagreeable and agreeable fades away and you can just exist no matter what, whether it's something with eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. But as you have cravings that are in the mind and the mind's not yet fully transformed, there is this agreeable thing and there's this disagreeable thing. And the example you gave is this, experiences that you had with apples so the mind has been conditioned to think that apples are disagreeable so when you see an apple because of this craving and clinging that the mind has from past experiences there's this disagreeable feeling so you have a painful experience maybe it's annoyance or irritation or whatever it is the mind is to a certain degree repulsed by this apple and what you would like to do is get to the point where that doesn't exist in the mind and you need to confront that is, you know, to have some apples rather than continuing to have aversion to them and push them away. You actually need to confront this and walk towards the apple and hold it, to look at it, to eat it, to understand that there's nothing wrong with the apple, but it's just the mind, which is having the craving desire attachment so there's this agreeable and disagreeable that's formed in the mind but with enough training that all fades away and you just see things for what they are which is there's a form there's a sound there's an odor there's a flavor there's a physical object and there's a mental object and these things don't need to be agreeable or disagreeable they're just what they are there's just a form there's just a sound there's just an odor there's just a flavor there's just a physical object or a mental object and we don't have to have agreeable or disagreeable it's just there it just exists and then the mind can be at ease and it can be peaceful calm serene and content with joy when it doesn't have that craving in the agreeable and disagreeable thank you you're welcome um it seems that those are all the questions that we have right now sir all right so we'll move on to chapter two all right, let's go to Allie to read chapter two. Is this chapter two? Yes, we can hear you, Allie. Oh, I'm sorry, is this chapter two here? Yes, this is chapter two, what I'm sharing now. Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, um, the symphony, symphony of the great log. Do you see, Mang, that the great log being carried along by the current of the river Gangs? 
just went for a observe. If monk that lock does not wear toward towards the near shore, does not wear towards the far shore, does not sing in midstream, does not get cast up on the high ground, does not get caught by human being, does not get caught by not human being, does not get caught in in a whirlpool and does not become inwardly rotten, it will slant slow and inclines towards the ocean. For what reasons? Because the current of the river gains slant slow and inclines toward the ocean. So too, Mom, if you do not reach toward the near sword, do not reach toward the far shore, do not sink in midstream, or do not get cast up on the high ground, do not get caught by human being, do not get caught by non-human being, do not get caught in the whirlpool, and do not become inwardly rotten, you will start slow, I'm sorry, I'm sorry you will slant slow and incline toward Nibbana. For what reason? Because ripe you start, because ripe you slam slow and incline toward Nibbana's. When this was said, a certain monk asked the perfected enlightened one, what venerable sir is the near soul? What is the far soul? What is the singing, singing in the midstream? What is getting cash up on? high ground, what is getting caught by human being, what is getting caught by non-human being, what is getting caught in the whirlpool, what is inward rottenness. The near soul monk is the destination for the six internal sense space. That the far soul, that is the destination to the six external sense space. Sinking in the midstream, this is the destination for excitement and desire. Getting cast up on the high ground, this is the destination for the conceit I am. And what monk is getting caught by human being? Here someone lived in association with household practitioner he rejoiced with them and sorrow with them. He is happy when they are happy and sad when they are sad. And he involved himself in their affair and duty. This is called getting caught by the human being. And what monk is getting caught by non-human being? Here, someone lived the holy, the holy life with the aspiration aspiration to be reborn into a certain order of heavenly beings, thinking by this virtue or vow or austerity or holy life, I will become a heavenly being or one among the heavenly beings. This is called getting caught by non-human being. Getting caught in willful pool 
this month is the de destination for the five core of sensual desire. I'm sorry, sensual, sensual pleasure. And what monk is inward rottenness? Here someone is immoral, one of unwholesome character, of impure and subspective behavior, secretive in his act, no ascetic thought claiming to be one, not a celibate through claiming to be one, inwardly rotten, corrupt, wicked, this is called the inward rottenness. All right. Thank you, Ali. So here the Buddha is using mm -hmm. the river in this log to represent moving to enlightenment because he uses somebody entering the stream as being the first stage of enlightenment. Because once you're in the stream, now this log can get to the ocean. The ocean is enlightenment. And now he's talking about how this log that has entered the stream can get hung up and hinder it from getting to enlightenment. And he talks about the near shore, the far shore, sinking midstream, getting cast up on high ground, getting caught by human beings, getting caught by non-human beings, and getting caught in the whirlpool or becoming inwardly rotten. And once somebody enters the stream, they have right view. And right view leans towards the ocean or it leans towards nibbana that's what he's saying here because right view slants slopes and inclines towards enlightenment so somebody who's attained the first stage of enlightenment will have established right view and there's right view of the four noble truths but then there's other aspects of right view as well that are needed to be cultivated and that's discussed in volume five as part of this book series which is titled the first stage of enlightenment so once somebody's entered into this stream, they can still get caught up. And the Buddha is explaining here how someone can get caught up by the six internal sense bases, which is the near shore. They can get caught up by the far shore, which is the six external sense bases. They can sink midstream, which is the excitement and desire related to central desire. They can get on the high ground, which is the conceit or the arrogance or the pride of I am. And then he talked about getting caught up with human beings because ordained practitioners would be, in some cases, living alongside of household practitioners when they're invited into their home. And here he talks about, you know, when a household practitioner rejoices or is sorrowful that somebody is happy or sad with that person. So even though he's talking here to the ordained practitioners and relating it to household practitioners, you can use this as well amongst your friends, amongst your family, amongst the people that you interact with. This is where if someone else is so happy, so excited, and you allow the mind to do that as well, you're getting caught up with human beings. Or if someone else is sad or frustrated or disgruntled and you allow your mind to do the same thing, this is getting caught up with human beings. So we can have compassion for them, concern for their misfortune. We can have loving kindness where you have a genuine interest in seeing them be well. But when we allow our feelings to be attached to other people's feelings, this is like if somebody was in a quicksand and you jump down into the quicksand to try to help them get out. Instead, what you should do is you should stand on stable ground and reach out your hand. And then when they reach out and grab your hand, then you can help them out of the quicksand. But what the Buddha is explaining here is if you get caught up with human beings, 
you're going to basically sink down with them because you're allowing your mind to experience these conditioned pleasant feelings and these conditioned painful feelings based on the condition of other people's minds. Part of what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is rising above the murkiness of the world. So even though the world by and large is conducting themselves in certain ways, you're trying to rise above that murkiness and you can't do that if your feelings are attached to what other people are choosing to do. And then getting caught up by non-human beings would be if you had an aspiration to be reborn in the heavenly world. This is a thing that some people think about in the Buddhist world. They say, oh, I'm just going to practice to a certain degree, just enough to get to the heavenly world and the heavenly realm, and then I'm going to get enlightenment there. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. So if somebody has those aspirations and those goals, they can actually get caught up and realize at the end of this life that they are either reborn back into the human realm or maybe into one of the lower realms. So it would be wise to apply dedication and effort to attaining enlightenment in this life so you don't get caught up by these things. And then the Buddha talks about getting caught up in the whirlpool, which is these five chords of central pleasure. We're going to be talking about those today. We talked about the six sense bases, which are the organs. Those are the internal sense bases. Then there's the external sense bases, which are form, sounds, odors, flavors, physical objects, and mental objects. The cord is the craving for these things. And the mind in the unlighted state is craving through the five sense bases, the, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, and the bodily contact. This would be the cords or the, the longing and yearning from the sense bases that are internal, the organs, to the external sense bases. So the mind is longing to see agreeable forms or agreeable sounds or agreeable odors or agreeable flavors or agreeable physical objects. This is the mind longing for those. And then the inward rottenness that the log might experience. This is when somebody has immoral character and impure and kind of claiming to be on the path to enlightenment, claiming to be an aesthetic or somebody who's claiming to be practicing really closely, but in reality, they're very secretive in their actions and not truly actually practicing the true path. The Buddha talks about this as corrupt or wicked. This would be inward rottenness. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Um, sir, Marcy has her hand raised. Let's go there. Thank you, Teacher David. Thank you, Miranda. Um, Teacher David, I'm looking for a little bit of guidance um, because I find myself now every um, time I get um, either stimulation from an external source or I feel something inside of me, I'm always feels like I'm stepping into this uh, kind of stepping into my mind and I find myself kind of running through like where is this coming from and and I'm not sure if like I'm doing too much or am I overdoing it because sometimes I, I will say that I will feel like I'll get lost in it to try to find it um, but then when I can locate it I come back and I you know I have I, I I don't want to say I feel a sense of relief, but I feel like I've, um, I feel a little lighter, but I'm not sure if, if, if I'm, if I'm applying right effort. Can you give me an example, like a specific thing? 
Um, so just so just one. Uh, uh, let's just say, like I come into like uh, all right. For example, uh, flowers. Like um, we have some new flowers that came into work, and I found myself getting very excited. Uh, about these flowers and their beauty and stuff. And then I stopped myself and I said, wait a minute. Okay, obviously I'm, you know, I'm creating some discontentedness here because this pleasure feeling is coming into me. And then I stop and I say, okay, why is this happening? Where is it coming from? Why is it? And then I'll go into a journey, but like, you know, one of the most peaceful things I had as a child is I would go get lost in the fields and go pick flowers and be with the flowers and be with nature. And it was, it was, it was pleasing to me. It was, it was like serenity. And then when I come out of that analyzation, that the analyzing of all of those things that are kind of interconnected, I kind of feel a little bit lighter in my, in my sense. And then I'm, then I'm on, but I find myself that I get very, um, it happens often. Like it's a lot, it happens a lot throughout the day. It's not just like, you know, that happens and the rest of the day, nothing else happens. It's like a constant thing, but I don't know if I'm overworking it. Like, you know, I'm applying too much effort or not the right effort. Okay. So what you've got to be aware of is those four foundations of mindfulness that now that you're aware that these cravings are there that are arising, these pleasant feelings is observe them as bodily sensations so that you can get ahead of them. So that when the new flowers come in and you feel the mind like, Oh, and you start longing and yearning for it and you start feeling the bodily sensation come up, you've got to cut it off and let it go there. And it might mean you have to turn and walk away and move in a different direction because when there's this contact through the eyes and you see the flowers, that's what is arising the craving, which arises the pleasant feelings. Or if there's a certain odor and you smell the flowers coming in and you know they're in the box, you haven't seen them yet, and it arises this craving that's in the mind and now that's where the pleasant feelings arise so when you are aware to this level of detail with the six sense bases then you can get ahead of the curve you know when you see the flowers coming in or when you observe the odor you can cut that off and let it go and you don't have to avoid it you would just like to observe that the mind has this craving these pleasant feelings are arising and you would like to get ahead of it where it's just a bodily sensation and you can cut it off and let it go there and remain more in that middle way that the Buddha taught. So right effort for me would be just the observation and trying to cut it off. That would be the right effort, not sitting there going down this rabbit hole and trying to find, you know, where, or why, you know, I'm experiencing this, this, this way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, does that make sense? Yeah. Whenever there's discontentedness in the mind, you always know it's craving, desire, attachment. And you just said what it was is that when you were a child, you, you know, really enjoyed being out in the fields and, you know, being with these flowers. And there's this craving, this mental longing and this yearning that's there. So, you know, whenever discontentedness, there's always going to be a craving there. So in the moment when you're observing the bodily sensations, the craving and discontentedness is starting to arise cut it off and let it go. And then 30 minutes later, an hour later, two hours later, if you'd like to look at it and try to figure out what it's related to, then you can do that. But in the moment, you got to just cut it off rather than try to analyze it in that moment. Thank you so much, teacher. You're welcome. Sir, on Facebook, Amina asks, I have been working on not getting caught in the emotions of others. 
and concerned it might seem to be unkind, even though the intention is the opposite. Is there guidance on this approach? Yeah, there's going to be people in your life who have certain expectations of you. And you might have adopted those expectations that when someone else is sad, they're expecting you to be sad with them. Or when they're happy, they're expecting you to get into an excited state as well. That's their craving, desire, attachment. You don't need to adopt that as being yours. So if they choose to get angry because you're not excited with them or they choose to get angry because you're not sad with them, then they're causing that themselves you shouldn't allow your mind to adopt their cravings and their expectations because that's what it means to get caught up with human beings that the Buddha is talking about here. You're getting caught up with other people's cravings and expectations. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. That's all, the questions. that's all the questions we have for right now. All right. So we'll move on to the next chapter, chapter three. Let's go to Jan for chapter three, sir. Thank you, Miranda. Five chords of sensual pleasure. Monks, there are these five chords of sensual pleasure. What are the five forms recognizable by the eye that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving? Sounds recognizable by the ear that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving. Odors recognizable by the nose that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving. Lips recognizable by the tongue that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving. Physical objects recognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of craving. These are the five chords of sensual pleasure. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who are tied to these five chords of sensual pleasure, obsessed with them and completely committed to them and who use them without seeing the danger in them, or understanding the escape from them, it may be understood of them. They have met with calamity, met with disaster. The evil one may do with them as he likes. Suppose a forest deer who was bound lay down on a heap of traps. It might be understood of him. He has met with calamity, met with disaster. The hunter can do with him as he likes. And when the hunter comes, he cannot go where he wants. As to those ascetics and Brahmins who are not tied to these five chords of sensual pleasure, who are not obsessed with them or completely committed to them, and who use them seeing the danger in them and understanding the escape from them, it may be understood of they have not met with calamity, not met with disaster. The evil one cannot do with them as he likes. Suppose a far who was unbound lay down on a heap of traps it might be understood of him he is not met with calamity not met with disaster the hunter cannot do with him as he likes and when the hunter comes he can go where he wants suppose a forest deer is wandering in the forest wilds he walks without fear stands without fear sits without fear lies down without fear why is that 
because out of the hunter's range. So too, quite distant from sense desires, distant from unwholesome mental states, enters and resides in the first jhana, which is with thinking and pondering, based in seclusion, filled with excitement and joy. This monk is said to have blinded Mara, blindfolded Mara, to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity. This follows with the second jahana, the fourth jahana, the space is infinite, the consciousness is infinite, the base of nothingness, the base of neither perception nor non-perception. The discourses are identical, except for the reference to each. Again, by completely serving the base of neither perception nor non-perception, a monk enters upon and resides in the elimination of perception and feeling, and his taints are destroyed by his seeing with wisdom. This monk is said to have blindfolded Mara, to have become invisible to the evil one by depriving Mara's eye of its opportunity, and to have crossed beyond attachment to the world. He walks without fear, stands without fear, sits without fear, lies down without fear. Why is that? Because he is out of the evil one's range. All right. Thank you, Jan. So here the Buddha introduces the five cords of central pleasures, and this is the longing through the sense bases for the external sense base. And it's just the five here rather than the mind. So it's the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, longing for form, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. And the Buddha is explaining here that these cords or these cravings are basically binding up the mind like this deer who's trapped by the hunter's traps. But when you don't have this central desire and you don't have this five cords of central pleasure where the mind's longing for things through the sense bases, then you can't get trapped. You can't get caught up by this hunter. And the hunter that the Buddha is talking about is Mara, the evil one. This is a being who is looking to do harm in the world and do harmful things. Some traditions might refer to this as the devil or Satan or Lucifer or things like this. The Buddha referred to him as Mara, the evil one, because this being is only interested in harmful things happening in the world. And that's the way we're enticed through our sense bases to long and yearn. The mind's already longing and yearning, but we can be influenced through different things in the world, through our sense bases. But as we move and we train the mind, and the mind becomes more and more distant from these central desires, and we're practicing all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path, the mind starts moving into what's called the first jhana. There's four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it experiences the first stage of enlightenment. Once the mind is in the first jhana, then the Buddha is saying, okay, you've blindfolded Mara. They can no longer see you because you're now distant from these central desires. The mind in the jhana still has central desire. There's still central desire there all the way up until you enter into the third stage of enlightenment, where that's where that fetter is ultimately eliminated as the mind moves into the third stage. But here in the jhanas, you've at least got enough control and enough restraint over the mind that if you're enticed in any way through the sense bases that you 
aren't influenced in a negative way towards anything that is the mind has regarding the sense bases. And the Buddha explains this as well related to these other attainments. There's the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas, but then there's four other attainments too. In order to get to enlightenment, everybody is going to need to experience the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. But these other attainments, not everybody experiences them. Some people experience them and some people don't. There's another part in the book series where I explain what each one of these attainments are and whether you will experience it or not experience it. So it's better to cover those uh, in another part of the book series. Any questions on this particular chapter? It doesn't appear there are any questions at this time, sir. Oh, wait, I see Jan just raised her hand. Let's go, Jan. Yeah, I'm sorry. Thank you, Miranda. I'm a little slow. Thank you, David. Um, we had a discussion that you suggested I might have had an experience with Mara. And I have a little bit of a problem with the whole idea of Mara because I don't really believe in um, things like devils and so forth. And so I, I wonder if you could um, just give me a little more guidance here about how to regard this. Yeah, so there is this being of Mara, and depending on what your experiences have been, you may observe that that's what it is, and you may not have. You shouldn't believe in this being, but depending on what your experiences have been, you may have encountered this being and know that for sure this is that being. If you haven't encountered the being of Mara, you've definitely encountered Mara's work in other beings, where this being is looking to influence unwholesome things in the world and harmful things. And then you're experiencing those as part of your interactions with other beings in the world. You don't necessarily have to know with 100% certainty that Mara exists or doesn't exist. I know that based on certain experiences that I've had, but just know that there's all these influences in terms of you getting to enlightenment and eliminating central pleasure and central desire that just know that there's all these influences that are out there in the world and that you're going to need to restrain the sense bases, gain control over them, and ultimately eliminate sensual desire so that you're no longer influenced by any of these sensual pleasures, particularly these five chords of sensual pleasure. So whether Mara exists or doesn't exist, it doesn't really matter because it's not going to change your practice. So if you haven't encountered this being in a way that you know for sure that it is Mara, don't worry about that. No need to be fearful or anything like that because your practice is going to be the same. You still need to eliminate central desire from the mind in order to get to enlightenment. Whether you're being influenced by Mara or something else, it doesn't really matter because you're still going to have to eliminate central desire to train the mind to get to enlightenment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Okay, um, Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, just a quick question. Uh, does Mara have minions or is it just him doing the work? There's Mara and other beings as well. So Mara is the being that oversees hell, essentially. And there's beings in the hell realm. There's also beings in the afflicted spirit realm. And all of these beings, they're not as powerful and as potent as Mara but they're still doing similar work as him. Just like in the heavenly realm, there's all these different heavenly beings that are looking to influence wholesome things in the world. Mara's got other beings working on his behalf as well. 
It appears those are all the questions that we have right now, sir. All right. So moving on to chapter four. Okay, um, chapter four, let's go to Nick. One who guards the doors of the sixth sense basis. And how is a monk guarded as to the doors of the sixth sense basis? Here, a monk seeing a form with the eye, he hears a sound with the ear, with the nose smells an odor, with the tongue tastes a flavor, with the body touches a physical object, with the mind he recognizes a mental object, does not grasp at the general features or details of them. Sense craving and aversion, evil unwholesome states might flow in upon one who dwells with the sense base of the eye uncontrolled, the sense base of the ear uncontrolled, the sense base of the nose uncontrolled, the sense base of the tongue uncontrolled, the sense base of the body uncontrolled, the sense base of the mind uncontrolled. He applies himself to such control he sets a guard over the sense base of the eye, the sense base of the ear, the sense base of the nose, the sense base of the tongue, the sense base of the body, the sense base of the mind, attains control of them. That is how a monk has the doors of the six sense bases guarded. All right. Thanks, Nick. So the Buddha doesn't say it exactly here, but he says that oftentimes in other parts of his discourses, where he describes what this guard is. What the guard is, is mindfulness or awareness of mind. That right mindfulness is part of the Eightfold Path, that mindfulness that's part of the seven factors of enlightenment. This is your guard. So when you're practicing awareness of mind, and particularly those four foundations of mindfulness, being aware of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind and mental objects, this is what's guarding the six sense bases. And this is why when Marcy asked about, you know, what do I do in this situation? My response to her was, you know, be aware that you have this craving. So that's the first part of it. And then when the flowers come in, be aware when those bodily sensations arise, that's the mindfulness so that then you can cut it off and let it go there. If you weren't practicing mindfulness and you didn't have awareness of mind in those four foundations of mindfulness, you wouldn't have your sense bases guarded and this is why the Buddha says that evil, unwholesome states might flow in upon one who dwells with the sense bases uncontrolled, essentially. So if you have mindfulness, and that's what's protecting the mind, that's what's guarding the mind, that awareness that you know, starting to maybe know if you're practicing and you're experiencing some peacefulness, some calmness, serenity, some contentedness and joy, you know what that middle feels like when the mind's there in the middle. So when the mind moves out of the middle, where there's these pleasant feelings that are starting to rise, you should get more and more aware that when that's happening and jump on that right away and restrain the mind and pull it back. Or when you observe the painful feelings coming in, you should be getting more and more aware of that and then be able to jump on that and cut it off and bring it back. Or the neither painful nor pleasant. So that's the guard is practicing mindfulness at all times. The Buddha explains that even when you're lying down, getting ready to fall asleep and your mind's just kind of dozing off to sleep, you even have to have mindfulness right there. Because if you're dozing off to sleep, you're going to potentially have certain thoughts that are arising in the mind, 
right? That you might not have anything coming in through the eyes, you might not have anything in the ears or these other places, but even as you're dozing off, there can be thoughts that arise in the mind. And if there's any unwholesome thoughts that are arising, you've got to be aware of those with mindfulness and cut it off and let it go. Even in that situation, when you're falling asleep, when you're waking up and all day long, that's your guard is the right mindfulness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Uh, Nick has his hand raised. Let's go to him. Thank you, Miranda. Yes, teacher David, in, in some instances, if uh, you're using mindfulness, the practitioners using mindfulness, and they're able to cut it off, can they still continue whatever it was they were doing? Like say, for example, you're at an amusement park, get excited, going on a ride, but you cut it off, but you're able to continue the, because um, you're with like, you know, say children or something, you continue the event or whatever. Certainly, yeah, you'll be able to gain more and more control over that. There's nothing that says you have to stop, you know, what you're doing. But in certain situations, eliminating the contact for a period of time can help bring the discontentedness down and eliminate it. And then you might decide to re-engage. So it's really up to you whether you choose to continue to be involved in that event and how far you go. But there's nothing that says you have to stop the event. But it can be wise in certain situations to step away and eliminate contact so you can gain control over the mind and then start to move back into the event that might be wise but each situation's a little bit different it really depends on the degree of discontentedness that's in the mind which is going to be directly correlating to the degree of craving if there's a significant craving in the mind it's going to arise significant discontentedness if there's just a little bit of craving it's just going to arise just a little bit of a smidget of discontentedness and depending on what you're experiencing whether small or great you might decide to step away and avoid contact for 10 minutes or 30 minutes or what have you or not maybe it's just a minimal discontentedness you can cut it off and let it go and just keep going so each situation is going to be a bit different okay um jan has her hand raised sir let's go to her thank you miranda um, thank you, Teacher David. Um, I had a question about the, the part about where you just um, explained that we even need to be on guard when we're falling asleep. Um, what to do about a dream that one finds uh, disconcerting when awakening and recalling the dream, right? Because you can't really control your dreams, right? Yeah, I wasn't mentioning dreams. I was mentioning that period of time where you're dozing off yeah. to sleep, where you can have thoughts that yeah. are arising. But if you're in a dream, you're in a dream, right? And then when you come out of the dream, when you wake up, that's where you need to understand that that is a dream. It's not true reality. Just cut it off and let it go. Dreams can kind of alert us to certain cravings that we have. So if you have dreams and you had a dream of your own death and you woke up fearful of your own death, then that can show you that you have craving to exist in the world. Or if you had a dream that a certain loved one or someone close to you has died and you woke up being fearful for their death, that can show you that you still have craving and attachment to that individual. So they can dreams can be indications and help you get insight into the mind and where the craving desires are. And you can address those outside, but you need to understand that there's no way that we can control our dreams, 
but our dreams are just going to happen. And then when we wake up, when the mind is unsettled or discontent, that's where you have to understand that's a dream. Leave it behind, you know, wipe it off and just move on with your day. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. Uh, it appears that's all the questions that we have right now. All right. We're on chapter five then. One, to reach growth, increase, and maturity in this training discipline. Monks, when a cattle worker possesses 11 factors, he is capable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. What 11? Here, a cattle worker has wisdom of form. He is skilled in characteristics. He removes flies' eggs. He dresses wounds. He smokes out the sheds. He knows the watering place. He knows what it is to have drunk. He knows the road. He is skilled in pastures. He does not milk dry. And he shows extra veneration to those bulls who are fathers and leaders of the herd. When a cattle worker possesses these 11 factors, he is capable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. So too, monks, when a monk possesses 11 qualities, he is capable of growth, increase, and maturity in the teachings and discipline. What 11? Here a monk has wisdom of form, he is skilled in characteristics, he removes flies eggs, he dresses wounds, he smokes out the sheds, he knows the watering place, he knows what it is to have drunk, he knows the road, he is skilled in pastures, he does not milk dry, and he shows extra veneration to those elder monks of long standing who have gone long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the community. How does a monk remove flies? Here, when a thought of sensual desire has arisen, a monk does not tolerate it. He abandons it, removes it, does away with it, and obliterates it. When a thought of ill will has arisen, when a thought of harming has arisen, when evil unwholesome states have arisen, a monk does not tolerate them. He abandons them, removes them, does away with them, and obliterates them. That is how a monk removes flies' eggs. How does a monk dress wounds? Here, on seeing a form with the eye, a monk does not grasp at its signs and features, since if he left the eye base unguarded, evil unwholesome states of craving and aversion might invade him. He practices the way of its restraint. He guards the eye sense base. He undertakes the restraint of the eye sense base. On hearing a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind, a monk does not grasp at its signs and features. Since, if he left the mind sense base unguarded, evil unwholesome states of craving and aversion might invade him. He practices the way of its restraint. He guards the mind sense base. He undertakes the restraint of the mind sense base. That is how a monk dresses wounds. Here, only two of the 11 factors are shared as these two apply to sensual desire and the six sense bases. See the included reference for the entire teaching. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So this entire teaching is shared in a later book of this book series, but these are two that are out of the 11 that are related to the sense bases. The Buddha often used analogies and similes that people understood during their lifetime. So a lot of farmers and 
people that are in the countryside would understand this particular analogy about being a cattle worker. And here he shares about how somebody would remove fly eggs. And this is somebody who, when central desire arises in the mind, they don't tolerate it. They remove it. They let it go. And then he also talks about when a thought of ill will arises, they eliminate that. And also the thought of harming arises, they eliminate that. This is part of right intention. If you remember the full path, there's three aspects to right intention. The intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. So here the Buddha is connecting that because you have to have the thought or the thinking of eliminating or relinquishing or letting go. That's the renunciation. And here he's directly tying it to central desires because that's what the mind is holding on to. It's holding on to things through these sense bases, all six of them. And as long as the mind's doing that, it's going to keep experiencing discontentedness. Likewise, if there's this thought of ill will or this thought of harming, it's going to continue to produce harmful speech and actions in the world, which are just going to come back and harm us. So in order to get to enlightenment, you have to be willing to remove central desire, remove ill will and any thoughts of harming. Then in order to dress the wounds, this is a person who understands the six sense bases. And then you have this restraint or this control that you start to develop around these six sense bases. And the way that you do that is through breathing mindfulness meditation, through practicing generosity. Those are the generalized trainings in order to train the mind to let go of craving, desire, attachment. When we talk in the group learning program and we talk in the Four Noble Truths and things like that, we talk just generally about craving, desire, attachment and using breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity to generally train these things. But now in this program, you can see that where that craving is really coming in is it's coming in through these six sense bases. It's longing and yearning through these sense bases so that when you experience something through these six sense bases, because you will experience things through the six sense bases. You can't you know, not experience something through the six sense bases. But when you're experiencing something, you don't grasp on it. You don't hold on to it. You don't cling to it. You don't yearn for it. You don't have these cravings for certain things. You don't have this aversion. So this is the agreeable and disagreeable. You need to get to the point where if there's something that you currently know that the mind doesn't like, you need to confront that. One of the things that just happened today, which is interesting, is for a long, 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 long time, there's this fruit here in Asia called durian. And people usually either typically really enjoy it and have this great admiration and interest in eating durian. And then there's people that just despise it and think it's horrible. Well, when I first came to Asia and started experiencing durian, I was the one who really didn't like durian. It smells like poop. And it has the same consistency of poop when it goes in your mouth. So oftentimes people don't like it because it smells and tastes like poop. And a couple of days ago, my wife was talking about durian. And I was like, oh, you know, I now that I've been training my mind, I should have some durian at some point. Well, today she happened to go out and buy some durian and she was cutting it up. She was like, would you like some? And I was like, all right, sure. Pop it in there. You know, this will be good for the mind. And when she put it in, I noticed that there was no aversion to it. It actually tasted uh, somewhat decent, which is very different than what I've experienced in the past before training the mind. So rather than run away from these things that are certain disagreeable, 
what I shared with my wife a couple of days ago is like, yeah, I should probably try durian. I haven't had that for such a long time. It'd be a good test for the mind. You should not run away from these things and have aversion. You should actually put yourself in the situation where you're creating situations where the mind has to confront these things. This is how you train the mind to not have aversion by putting it in that situation that it has aversion to and then training it to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy regardless. And that's going to probably take more than one time of putting yourself in that situation. And there's other situations like this that I could explain that I've consciously put the mind in that situation where I was experiencing something through the sense bases that the mind had to create this peacefulness, this calmness. And that's the way you can ensure that the craving, desire, attachment is out of the mind. This is where the Buddha talks about obliterating it at the stump, destroying central desire and these other fetters. He talks about obliterating it at the stump so that it's no longer subject to future arising. And the only way that you'll know if you've obliterated it at the stump and it's no longer subject to future arising is if you test the mind. So back to Jan's examples with the apple, you know, that might be the last thing you're thinking about doing right now. But at some point, you should put the mind in a situation where you're encountering an apple over multiple situations and train the mind that there's just nothing wrong with this apple and it's just completely fine. It's just some fiber. It's just some skin of an apple. It's just some substance. It's just a physical form that the eyes are seeing. It's just a certain texture that the tongue is tasting. There's a certain odor there. And the mind doesn't have to have agreeable or disagreeable aspect to this and then you can just eat it and be completely fine with it we should get to the point where food that we're interacting with it's not to please the mind and please the tongue it's to nourish the body one of the things that is the most strong central desire is food is that we tend to have certain things that are agreeable and disagreeable and we're trying to always please the tongue so that's also pleasing the mind. So then when we're in situations where food isn't so tasty, then the mind becomes discontent. So you should put your mind and the tongue in a situation where it starts to learn that you're not going to get what you want all the time. It's not about pleasing the tongue and pleasing the mind. It's about putting some substance into the body that nourishes the body. This is where it's really helpful to think of the body, the mind, and the person, these three entities, and think about this mind like a little, you know, five-year-old kid that's throwing a temper tantrum. When that kid throws a temper tantrum, if you keep giving it what it wants, then it learns that it can keep throwing this temper tantrum and it keeps getting what it wants. So it's going to keep throwing this temper tantrum. And as long as you keep giving it what it wants, it's going to keep having this temper tantrum. The way you stop a child from doing that is you don't give it what it wants. And then it learns that that's not going to be productive. So the same thing is your mind's having this temper tantrum. It's having this discontentedness, these painful feelings, these pleasant feelings, and these feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. And when it's experiencing those, and it's like, no, 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 I want the chocolate cake. I want the chocolate cake. I don't want the apple. I don't want the apple. I want the chocolate cake. You're, the person has to step in and say, okay, mind, Mr. or Mrs. Mind, you're not getting the chocolate cake. I know that's what you want but you're getting the apple and you're going to eat the apple and you might not really like it the first few times you do it. You might not like the taste, but you kind of almost have to push forward 
and ensure that the tongue and the mind realize that you're not going to let it throw this temper tantrum because if you keep feeding the temper tantrum with the chocolate cake, it's always going to have this aversion to the apple, for example. So you've got to put the mind in that situation. And this is where your active training comes in, that it's not just meditation. It's outside of meditation, too, where you see aversions that the mind has or you see these cravings that the mind has. You need to put the mind in situations where it can be trained to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no matter what it's experiencing. Whether it's forms in the eyes, sounds in the ears, odors in the nose, flavors on the tongue, physical objects on the body, or certain mental objects as well. Any questions on this chapter? Um, no, sir. Oh, we have Jan has her hand raised. Uh, let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. Teacher David, I'm still um, a little unsure about the mental objects. Um, would I be correct in thinking that these are sort of the stories we tell ourselves about things? We have a, a there's a thing in our mind, and we have a whole set of um, reactions or thoughts about that thing. A mental object, actual central desire, is a mental object. Ill will is a mental object. Complacency is a mental object. These are like containers that get fed. So the way that this happens is that as we were born and we start aging, you know, we experience these bodily sensations because of our cravings. There was a rising, this discontentedness. We had these bodily sensations. We had these feelings. We had this condition of mind that was affected for multiple hours or days or weeks. And we fed this mental object of ill will, for example. So there was this certain situation, this certain experience that arose this anger and hostility in the mind. We had those bodily sensations. We weren't aware of them because we hadn't studied these teachings. We started having these painful feelings of anger, hatred in the mind. We might have blamed other people. It started affecting our mind for multiple hours, days, and weeks that we were holding on to that situation. And we kept feeding this mental object, this container. We kept putting something into this mental object. And what the Buddha is teaching you as part of the four foundations of mindfulness is to get ahead of the curve is you got to be aware of those bodily sensations and cut off the arising discontentedness there so that you're no longer feeding these mental objects. And when you cut off the bodily sensations and you don't allow it to feed these mental objects as part of this whole process, now you're no longer feeding the mental objects. And then you're using things like breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, you're practicing generosity, you're practicing loving kindness in daily life, and you're uprooting this mental object and getting it out of the mind so that you can purify the mind. It's like taking a jackhammer and like jackhammering this mental object and getting it out of the mind. So by us kind of practicing this mindfulness and having this guard where we're guarding the doorways and we're aware of these bodily sensations, we can cut it off and let it go there, no longer feeding these mental objects. All the while, we're working on uprooting these mental objects so they're out of the mind. And once all this stuff is purified and out of the mind, the mind is no longer polluted, then there's no longer agreeable and disagreeable things because cravings no longer in the mind. And now you don't even experience the arising of any bodily sensations or any feelings or the condition of the mind isn't affected. There are no longer any mental objects. The mind is unconditioned. 
And this is where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently because you've done this work. And now it's effortless that you just practice the teachings all the time. But in this transitionary phase, you've got to be aware and have mindfulness of those bodily sensations. So you're almost putting like a blockade so that you're no longer feeding these mental objects of things like sensual desire, complacency, ill will, and all of these things. Thank you. You're welcome. It does not appear that there are any more questions at this time, sir. All right. We'll go to the next chapter, which is chapter six. Right. Uh, let's have uh, chapter six is read by Ali. Wow. Oh, the three underlining tendency. Wow. Depend on the eyes and forms. Eye consciousness arise. The meaning of the three is contact. With contact as condition, there arise a feeling. Feel as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant depending on the dependent on the ear and sound ear consciousness arise the meaning of the three is contact with contacts a condition there arise a feeling felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant when one is touched by pleasant feeling, if one excite in it, welcome it, and remain holding to it, then the underlying tendency to crave life, life within ones. When one is touched by a painful feeling, if one sorrow, grieve, and have displeasure, whip, whip, beating one's breast, and become this Start, then the underlying tendency to aversion lie within one. When one is touched by neither painful nor pleasant feeling, if one does not understand as it actually is, the origination cause, cause the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, the escape in regard to that feeling, then the underlying under the line tendency to to ignorant unknowing or true reality lie within ones monks that one shall there that one shall hear and now make an end of this contentment without abandoning the underlying tendency to pray for pleasant feeling without abolishing the underlying tendency to aversion to a painful feeling, without eliminating the underlying tendency to ignorance, unknowing or true reality in regard to neither, neither painful nor pleasant feeling, without abandoning, abandoning ignorance and arousing true wisdom. This is impossible. All right, thank you, Ali. So here the Buddha is connecting a couple of things for you. Mm -hmm. So let's go through this. First, he's talking about the eye observing forms and then becoming aware of that, which is the consciousness coming aware of the mind. So there's a, there's a physical eye, which is the organ. Then there's a certain form that the eye sees. Because the eye sees this physical form, now the 
mind becomes aware of that. That is I consciousness. All three of these things is contact. So here's another one. The ear is the organ or the sense base. The sound is this external sense base. And now because the ear hears a certain sound and becomes aware of it in the mind, these three things are is contact. And then the nose, which is the internal sense base, has this odor, this external sense base that it experiences. And now the mind becomes aware of that, which is nose consciousness. And these three things are contact. So we could go through each one of these. It's the same thing. And the Buddha is just explaining to you the process of what's happening here. And this contact is conditioned that when you experience this contact, that's when there can be an arising of pleasant, painful, and neither painful nor pleasant feelings because of the contact, because there is a nose, because there is an odor, because the mind does become aware of it as consciousness, there's this contact with the odor, and now there can be pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant because of that craving that's in there. So the Buddha is explaining this, and it can help you to guard the doorways that you know that there needs to be this contact. The Buddha is explaining that when you're touched by a pleasant feeling, if you excite in it, welcome it, remain holding on to it, then the underlying tendency to crave lies within one. So we'll just use Marcy's example because it's a great one that we can all relate to and probably have experienced ourselves. that when you see these flowers or you smell these flowers, and the mind excites in it, welcomes it, allows it to come into the mind and remains holding on to it, then that's the craving there. And the Buddha is explaining that that needs to be cut off and let go. And the same thing is if now you open the flowers and they're all rotten and you know you thought they were going to be actually nice because you saw the picture on the box and you got all excited and got all these pleasant feelings then you open up the box and they're all rotten and they're no good now there's going to be these painful feelings there's going to be this sorrow this displeasure and if the mind holds on to this then that's because there's this underlying tendency to aversion to push away the mind's trying to push away these painful feelings thinking that it's the object itself that is causing the painful feelings when in reality it's the mind's craving and then the Buddha talks about if one doesn't understand the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape of all of this, then they're being affected by ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. What he's talking about here is the three unwholesome roots or the three poisons of craving, anger, and ignorance. And he says that once somebody is making their way to understanding these things of craving anger and ignorance then they understand how these things are being caused which is here that he understand you understand the origination of them you understand the disappearance of them you understand the gratification the danger and the escape and i share this down here in the explanation to help you understand that the cause of all of these discontent feelings is craving desire attachment the disappearance of them the reason why they arise change and fade away is because of the universal truth of impermanence the gratification and the interest to even have these pleasant feelings to begin with is because of central desire that's in the mind this fetter this taint this pollution the danger is that as long as you allow that 
fetter of sensual desire to exist in the mind, there's going to be continuous discontentedness. And then the escape is the full path. That's how you eliminate craving, desire, attachment from the mind so that you no longer experience these pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant based on conditions. An enlightened being is still going to experience this joy. The mind's always going to be joyful. But if it's raining outside, the mind's joyful. If it's sunny outside, the mind's joyful. If you experience a certain food, the mind's joyful. If you experience another food, the mind's still joyful. There's no longer this agreeable and disagreeable in the mind. So the mind's just always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because it can accept anything because it understands any food that you're taking in or any odor that you smell, anything that you hear, anything that you see, any physical contact you have with the body, anything that comes into the mind, it's all impermanent. So the mind has been so well trained that you're not going to allow this impermanence to shake up the mind. You just understand that, okay, well, I'll just eat this apple because that's what's here and I'll just eat it. And you train the mind really well to accept this apple and eat this apple. And you can observe over a consistent period of time that you're completely content with the apple and you're fine with eating the apple and it doesn't bother the mind and your mind is just as peaceful and joyful with the apple or without the apple. It's no big deal. But you would need to understand this origination or this cause. You would also need to understand the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape, and really train the mind well in meditation, but outside of meditation as well. And you take these opportunities where you see the mind has a certain craving for something or a certain aversion to something. You take these opportunities to put the mind in that situation so that you train it to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in any and all situations. What questions do you guys have on this? Um, Nick has his hand. Yes, sir, let's go to him. Thank you, Marina. Teacher David, um, I understand discontentedness is, are the three feelings, the pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. But uh, I'd like to share that in this chapter is when I had a, a realization and what did it was in, in your description in the write-up, um, training the mind not to be averse, i.e. push away disagreeable experience to painful feelings through the six sense bases, will train the mind to eliminate the fetter taint pollution of the mind described as sensual desire. So the realization I had here was um, when I think of sensual desire, I always think of it as chasing pleasant feelings um, in particular, like, you know, when I see the, you know, when I see a listed sensual desire under the taints, you know, as one of the fetters, um, I always think it's like pleasant feelings and, you know, there's, cause there's other, there's nine other fetters, um, you know, in particular, you know, um, like things like lust when I, when I see it written as sensual desire, but, um, but I also know it's, you know, the other senses, you know, all of them, the six senses. Um, but here it's, it's when I realize, you know, aversion, like pushing it away, um, is a, is a form of sensual design. But when I think of desire, I think like, oh, I want that, you know, Did, mm -hmm. are, are you following what I'm trying to say here, sir? Yeah. 
Yeah, what you're essentially getting to is because there is sensual desire, there's craving for pleasantness, that's why the mind also has the aversion. These two things go together. That's why it's so important that we don't use the word suffering to talk about this word dukkha that the Buddha talked about that we call discontent, discontented or discontentedness. Because if we don't understand that what the mind's really doing is it has this central desire, it's craving pleasantness. And when it gets that, it feels these temporary pleasant feelings that as long as it's doing that, it's longing and yearning for these temporary pleasant feelings. That means when it encounters something it disagrees with or it doesn't like, it's going to have aversion as well. So the only way to get rid of the painful feelings is to get rid of the craving for pleasant feelings. And that's why it's so important we use the word discontent, discontented or discontentedness, because the real control of the mind is getting ahead of the curve when these pleasant feelings start to arise is to cut that off, that conditioned pleasant feeling. Then you won't actually experience the conditioned painful feelings. Not too long ago, uh, I also, I looked up the definition of aversion. Um, I was under the impression that it just meant avoiding things. You know, I was having a discussion with Christina, but I looked, actually looked up the definition. It's like a strong dislike. It's not just avoiding it. It's, it's got more to do with it about that. So um, after this and realizing what, what I explained, you know, I'm having a deeper understanding of it. That's good. Deeper understanding is wonderful. Um, and then on Facebook, sir, Paul Richard asks, Venerable teacher, how does one train the mind to do disagreeable or boring works, like, say, scheduling and planning one's routine for productivity, etc.? It's the same thing we've been talking about, is the mind's craving some other work, and that's where it gets its pleasant feelings. So when it's not doing that type of work, when it's doing this other work, then that's where the painful feelings or the neither painful nor pleasant feelings are coming in. So when you're doing the work that you currently find to be pleasurable and you feel those pleasant feelings arising, you've got to cut those conditioned feelings off and know that this experience that you're doing something that you prefer, it's temporary. And as long as you allow the mind to crave and cling to it, then when you're not doing that task and you're doing something else, then you're going to experience boredom. And you've got to understand that that task of scheduling that the mind currently doesn't like, that's temporary too. That's impermanent. You have to do a certain amount of that right now, it sounds like. So as long as you have this agreeable and disagreeable work, I like these tasks, I don't like these tasks, then your mind's going to experience this up and down where you experience pleasant feelings in some situations and painful feelings in other situations. So that boredom is part of the discontentedness that the mind's experiencing because it's craving this other work. And you've got to just look at all these things as part of the bigger picture and that you need to just accept all of it as impermanent and you're going to have to do some of these tasks and just train the mind to do it and do more of it. Because if the mind's discontent when you're doing scheduling, that means you should just do more and more and more of that until the mind submits and it realizes like, all right, I'm not going to be able to throw my temper tantrum because when I throw my temper tantrum and I'm bored and then he just switches over to this other task that I like, I got my way. But when you 
kind of train the mind to reside in this situation where it is bored and you just do that and do that and do it some more and do it some more until the mind finally submits and is like, all right, I'm just going to not be bored here. I'm just going to do what I need to do. So that's how you eliminate the boredom is don't allow the feelings of pleasant feelings to arise when you're doing these other tasks and put the mind in the situation that it's experiencing as being bored and just keep doing that more and more often until the mind eventually submits and decides that, all right, I'll do this. Thank you, sir. It appears that's all the questions that we have right now. All right, we'll move on to the next chapter. Chapter seven. Uh, for chapter seven, let's go to Jan. Thank you, Miranda. Who seeks excitement in discontentedness is not freed from discontentedness. Monks, one who seeks excitement in form seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in feeling seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in perception seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in volitional formations, choices, decisions, seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in consciousness seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in discontentedness, I say, is not free from discontentedness. All right. Thanks, Jan. So this is the Buddha connecting the longing and yearning for excitement and these pleasant feelings to the five aggregates. The five aggregates is what makes a being a being. So form, feeling, perception, volitional formations or choices and decisions, and the consciousness or the mind, these are the five aggregates. This is what makes a being a being a being. So a human has physical form. We have feelings, we have perceptions, which is our beliefs and opinions about the way things seem in the world, volitional formations, which is choices and decisions, and then this consciousness or this mind. A tree, for example, even though some people call plants alive and may consider them alive for certain reasons, they have physical form. Uh, some people argue that they have feelings. I would say that a tree doesn't have a feeling. They don't have perceptions. They don't have opinions. A tree doesn't look at another tree and be like, I think your branches are too thin. You need to have thicker branches. Um, a tree can't make volitional formations or choices and decisions. It can't decide, okay, I'm going to uproot myself, walk 100 meters, and then replant myself. It can't make that choice and decision because it doesn't have a mind. It doesn't have this consciousness. So that's how we can determine what a living being is because the Buddha gave us these five aggregates to help us understand that. So if we take excitement in this physical form that we're in, then that's clinging to this physical form, and then you're going to experience discontentedness. That excitement and the painful feelings are going to follow that up. And same thing is if you take certain excitement in the feelings that you have, then it's only a matter of time before the painful feelings come in. Same thing with perceptions, volitional formations, and consciousness. So you need to train the mind to not have these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings like excitement related to your physical form, related to the feelings, related to your perceptions, related to your choices and decisions, and the mind itself or the consciousness. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Yes, sir. Jan has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Thank you, Miranda. 
Um, teacher David, is this would this also be related to personal existence view to having feeling you have, you have a self or a non-self? Yeah, there's some of that in here that the self-image and the self-identity, although personal existence view comes at it from a different perspective because we're talking about the self-image and the self-identity those things are part of the five aggregates because the physical form is the self-image and then the self-identity is inside the consciousness. So the universal truth of non-self and that personal existence view, that first fetter, it's really targeted in that specific way where here the five aggregates is more of a description of what is a living being. But it's good that you're seeing that in here because this is what the mind clings to and holds on to when it thinks and falsely believes that there is a self or that personal existence view. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Yes, sir. On uh, Facebook, Amina asks, in this chapter, the discontentedness comes from the seeking. Is that right? By trying to hold on to form, feelings, etc., which are all temporary, therein lies the cause of discontentedness. Right, that seeking is that craving, the desire, the longing, the yearning. That's what the seeking is that, gosh, I really want to be excited about this physical body. So let me go do all these things to, you know, create this excitement. You know, let me get a certain hair done. Let me put on some makeup. Let me go get this new perfume, this new jewelry. It doesn't mean we can't do those things. Of course, we can maintain a certain appearance that we would like to maintain, but it's when the mind gets all these pleasant feelings and this excitement because of it. That's a conditioned feeling. So we might go get a new hairstyle. We might choose like, oh, I like this hairstyle. Let me get that new hairstyle. And then you get it. And you're like, mm, I like it. Looks pretty nice. Cool. But you don't get this overwhelming excitement about it. That's what the Buddha is explaining here. So oftentimes when we look at traditions like this, we either think it's on or off or it's black or it's white. But what the Buddha is teaching you here is how to navigate this middle, right? This whole path to enlightenment is all about navigating this middle. It's not about that we can't have a nice hairstyle. It's not that we can't pick some makeup and wear some makeup. We can do these things, but it's when the mind gets overindulgent and seeking these excitement in these things that now the mind's going to experience these conditioned feelings of pleasant feelings and it's only a matter of time before those conditioned painful feelings are going to come into the mind thank you sir um ali has her hand raised let's go to her hi teacher david so in this chapter here what is basically is if we are seeking excitement in the five aggregate it's discontentness right Exactly. This is clinging to the five aggregates, which the Buddha talks about in the Four Noble Truths and his version of the Four Noble Truths. The version that I share is a summarized version just to help people get started. But when you look at his words of the Four Noble Truths, he talks about clinging to the five aggregates, and that is discontentedness. So we have form, we have feelings, perceptions, choices, decisions, and a conscience. We have these things, but it's when we cling to it and hold on to it, wanting it to be permanent that we cause our self-discontentedness. So, you know, as we age, if we see wrinkles, if the mind is clinging to this physical body and wanting to see a youthful appearance, then there's going to be discontentedness in the mind. And we could go through all of these things in the same way. So 
we have these things and we we can interact with these things. We know that they exist, but it's when you cling to them and hold on to them that that's when the discontentedness is going to arise in the mind. Oh, okay. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, Chrissy also has her hand raised. Let's go to her. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to ask a question to also see if I'm understanding correctly with um, the flowers that you're talking about. And if there's pleasant feeling, strong, pleasant feeling when being around the flowers, one would practice stepping away from the flowers. Um, but then what? When, if you experience joy around the flowers, a lot of joy, um, and you, that you see that that's discontentment, and to eliminate discontentment, you step away, then when do you find the middle? How do you know when to maybe go back? Yeah, so when you're experiencing those conditioned pleasant feelings, that's when the mind is now discontent and then the painful feelings are going to come later. So what you can train the mind to do is like appreciate the flowers, have gratitude. Like say someone gives you some flowers, you can appreciate the flowers, you can have gratitude for the flowers, but it's when you allow this excitement to come into the mind that then when your friend or boyfriend or girlfriend doesn't give you flowers, now you kind of feel painful, like, oh, they don't love me, I'm angry, they're not getting me the flowers that I wanted, right? Or or the flowers start dying and wilting, and oh, the flowers are dying, oh, they're all gone now, right? So it's not that we can't experience the flowers, it's that when you observe the condition, pleasant feelings arising, you just cut that off. So if somebody gave me flowers, I'd be like, oh, thank you, that's very kind of you, that's very generous, you know, thank you, know, thank you for these flowers, it's very nice of you. Mm, I enjoy those flowers, oh, it smells great, they look so beautiful, I'm gonna put them right here because I, I think they look so beautiful. But then the mind doesn't have these overwhelming conditioned feelings, those conditioned feelings are not there. So then when these flowers are wilting and dying, we just understand that that's impermanence, it's part of life. And then we don't have this expectation that another set of flowers is going to show up. So you need to just observe that, okay, the, when these conditioned pleasant feelings are arising, to cut it off and let it go. And as you eliminate the craving for these flowers, then you can experience the flowers without these conditioned feelings. And that's where the mind is always peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy because there's no expectation for, for flowers. So when they show up, it's like, oh, wow, there's flowers here. That's outstanding, lovely, wonderful. And then as the flowers wilt away and die, you just understand that that's fine too. Or if nobody gives you flowers for a year or two or three, that's fine too because you don't have this expectation, which is the craving, desire, attachment. So you just have to be observant of the mind of what's going on with the mind. And that's that mindfulness and that guard. And as you observe that the craving desire attachment is diminished and eliminated, then you can still interact with these flowers and be completely content and peaceful regardless. Thank you. Yeah, so I'll follow that up, Chrissy. So what you're looking for is you're looking for the peacefulness to come into the mind. So when the mind swings to that pleasant feeling, 
you would like to cut that off and let it go. And then you should feel the mind come into this peacefulness and this calmness and the serenity where it's in the middle and it's just at ease. It's almost like the mind's taking a breath. And it might take a few minutes or a couple of hours for that to occur. And when that occurs and you feel that ease and that release of the conditioned pleasant feelings and the mind comes to that peacefulness, that's how you know, like, okay, the mind has let that go now. The Buddha calls this maturing and release, that you kind of mature the mind and you feel the conditioned pleasant feeling release from the mind. Okay, I think I understand um, it, it does bring me to my other question. What if you can't step away? What if it's a situation where you can't remove yourself from it to try to find that peace first? And um, what I'm experiencing is when I'm in that situation where I can't step away, I become cold or what feels cold to other people or, or numb because I'm not doing anything or responding. Um, so how does one, re how do you find that when you can't step away? I guess is my question. I'm sorry. Yeah. Your mind's just going to be discontent in that situation. You've got to, you can try to practice in the situation. You know, I, I mentioned stepping away because by breaking contact, that's one of the best ways to eliminate the arising of the craving. If you eliminate contact, but if you can't eliminate contact, you can try to still eliminate the discontentedness even when you still have contact in a certain situation. And even still, you might not have the discipline of the mind to eliminate the discontentedness while there's contact. So the mind's going to be discontent for a while in that situation. So as you accumulate the benefits more and more of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity, then you become better and more prepared to eliminate any arising discontentedness, but there's going to be certain situations where the mind's just going to have to be discontent and experience that. And then it dislikes it and it doesn't appreciate this discontentedness. And then it starts gaining better control over it. So this is kind of like our learning lesson and our wisdom that, yeah, we don't like this discontentedness. So I'm going to do something different about this and I'm going to be more dedicated to my meditation and I'm going to be more aware of those bodily sensations and I'm going to practice more in order to gain more control over this mind. So there's going to be situations where the mind just needs to experience that discontentedness and that's part of the learning process. Okay, thank you. And then just like understanding that it's not permanent, right? Like Exactly. When you experience that discontentedness and it comes into the mind, just know that it's not permanent, that you'll be able to get rid of it at some point. But just take a mental note of it. Like, aha, I'm attached to flowers. Look at that. Silly old mind. I used to <laughs> I used to laugh and joke at the mind sometimes. Uh, sometimes I would get really angry. And then like five minutes later, I would just bust out laughing. Like, you silly mind. What are you angry about that for? And that can be a way to really release it from the mind. It's just sometimes laugh at the mind. Like it's a this third entity. And look how silly it is that it's angry about this silly little thing when... It's just so small and insignificant. Thank you, teacher. You're welcome. It appears those are all the questions that we have for right now, sir. All right. So now we go to chapter eight. Who seeks excitement in the six sense spaces seeks excitement in discontentedness. Monks, 
One who seeks excitement in the eye seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in the ear seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in the nose seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in the tongue seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in the body seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in the mind seeks excitement in discontentedness. One who seeks excitement in discontentedness, I say, is not freed from discontentedness. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So this is the same thing as we saw in the previous chapter, but instead of the five aggregates, the Buddha is talking about the six sense bases here, that if the mind has this craving and yearning for pleasant feelings through the six sense bases, then there's going to be discontentedness. So when you're experiencing things through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, you just have to kind of get ahead of the curve. Don't allow the mind to cling to it. So if you're going on a holiday and you're driving down the road and you see this beautiful view, it's like, oh my goodness, that's a great view. Let's pull over and take a look. While you're sitting there looking at that view, there's nothing wrong in that. There's no harm in that. But while you're looking at it, you just got to tell the mind, this is impermanent. I can enjoy this in the moment and I can look around and wow, this is absolutely outstanding. But at some point, I'm going to get in the car and we're going to drive away from this. Whereas if you don't tell yourself and you don't understand that it's impermanent, then when you get out and it's time to go, it's like, oh, I don't want to go. I could sit here all day and look at this view. So what you tend to do is, you know, when you're eating a piece of chocolate cake and you take that first bite, it's like, oh, wow, that's good. Like right away, this is impermanent. I'm only going to enjoy it in this present moment. It's going to be gone in a couple of bites here, right? So when you observe certain pleasantness coming into the mind, this kind of help can help Chrissy too with her question, that when you observe certain pleasantness coming into the mind, just work to cut that off and let it go. And even if you're not able to, just tell yourself, this cake is impermanent. This is impermanent. This is impermanent. You might have to tell yourself that several times. You can enjoy it in that moment, but then just know that it's impermanent and don't allow the mind to cling to it or attempt to hold on to it, wanting it every time. And know that you can't get that chocolate cake every time or this view is going to be done with in a matter of minutes after you decide to get back in the car and move on. So by understanding impermanence and telling the mind that all these things are impermanent, when you start observing this pleasant feelings arising, then when you need to move on from that or you're done with the chocolate cake, then you won't experience these painful feelings as a result. Questions on this chapter? Um, Chrissy has her hand raised, so let's go to her. I did it again, I'm sorry. (laughs) I just left my hand up, I apologize. No worries, Chrissy. Okay, then it appears uh, we have no questions at this time, sir. All right, chapter nine. Let's go to Ali. Chapter 9, one dwelling with craving as a partner. Venerable Sir, in what way is one dwelling with a partner? There are mal- malgalala. <laughs> you can just say student. Form recognized <laughs> <laughs> by the eye that, that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensory, enticing, tempting. If among sick excitement in dumb, welcome dumb, and remain holding dumb, 
excitement arise. When when there is excitement, there is obsession of mind. When there is obsession of mind, there is bondage. Bound by the fetter of sensual desire, M, among is called one dwelling with a partner. There are M, sound recognizable by the ear, odor recognizable by the nose, flavor recognizable by the tongue, physical object recognizable by the body, mental object recognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If among six, excitement in dumb, he is called one dwelling with a partner. M, even though among who dwell thus resort to forest and grove, to remote lodging where there are few sound and little noise and occupy hidden from people appropriate for seclusion, he is still called one dwelling with a partner. For what reason? Because craving is his partner and he has not abandoned it. Therefore, he is called one dwelling with a partner. Venerable Sir, in what way is one a lone dweller? There are M, form recognized by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, does not welcome them, and does not remain holding to them, excitement is eliminated. When there is no excitement, there is no obsession of mind. When there is no obsession of mind, there is no bondage. Release from the fetter of sensual desire, M, a monk is called a lone dweller. There are M, sound recognized by the ear, odor recognizable by the nose, flavor recognizable by the tongue, physical object recognizable by the feet, mental object recognizable by the mind that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tempting. If a monk does not seek excitement in them, he is called a lone dweller. M, even though a monk who dwell does life in a vicinity of a village, association with male and female ordained practitioner, with male and female household practitioners, and king and royal minister, with sectarian teacher and their disciple, he is still called a lone dweller. For what reason? Because craving is his partner and he have abandoned it. Therefore, he is called a lone dweller. All right. Thank you, Ali. So here, the Buddha is essentially relating craving to being this partner, essentially this partner that you're carrying around on your shoulder. He also calls it a burden in other parts of his teachings, that we're carrying around this burden or this partner, because as we're going around the world and the mind is 
pulling in all these different six directions through the six sense bases, this is what tires out the mind. If you get to the end of your day and you're just utterly tired and exhausted, that's because the mind is pulling in all these different directions. And it can weigh on the mind and it can weigh on the body. Someone's dwelling with a partner, this burden. The mind is bound up. It's got this bondage because of this obsession, this craving, desire, attachment through these six sense bases. And conversely, when you let go of that and you no longer have this craving, desire, attachment, you've laid down the burden. You no longer have this partner. The mind is not obsessed through these six sense bases, pulling and yearning and longing towards the objects of its affection, it's released this fetter of central desire. Then the mind is no longer bound up. And the Buddha calls this a lone dweller. You're able to dwell alone by yourself, that you aren't always longing and yearning for something else. That's where the boredom and loneliness comes in, is that when you're alone, you have this partner, you have this craving, you're longing for something else, and the mind becomes lonely. But if you get rid of this craving, this desire, this longing and yearning, the mind is not bound up. And now when you're alone, you feel completely content and peaceful. Let's see what else does he talk about here. That's pretty much everything. Any questions on this chapter? Um, yes, sir. On Facebook, Manal asks, would characterizing something as extra or remarkable, as in this flower is extra beautiful due to the fact that it began blooming, a certain indicator that much needs to be worked on related to attachment and craving of the senses involved? It is sometimes to separate the mind as observer versus the mind entangled in sensory input. So if a scent was produced once, a year, once per year, would it be healthy to observe the nuanced changes and move on, or would stopping to enjoy the sight and scent be caught in perception enough to work on elimination? How would one practice this better? Yeah, so just observing that a flower is beautiful, and wow, it's just so beautiful. This is an outstanding, amazing flower. That doesn't necessarily mean there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind. It could mean that there's it's there, but it really depends on what the mind is experiencing in terms of conditioned, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, or neither painful nor pleasant. Our words can be indicators of whether there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, but just acknowledging that something is beautiful doesn't necessarily mean that there's a craving there. So this is where mindfulness is so important and having that awareness of mind. An individual practitioner has to develop the mindfulness so that they're aware when these conditioned feelings are arising and then they'll be able to know for themselves whether I can just say, wow, this is an absolutely outstanding, amazing, beautiful flower. I absolutely think this flower is so beautiful. You can say that without craving desire and attachment, or it could be a craving desire attachment. You can see well, at least I can tell through someone's bodily actions and their expressions on their face and their tone and tempo and the way that they're expressing it. You can see in their bodily movements whether there's actually a craving there or not. And if somebody is just saying this and their mind is just utterly calm and peaceful as they're saying it, then they can do that without craving desire attachment. Where if there's all this animation and you know, this overindulgence and this obsession 
in the mind, then there's going to be a different tone and tempo, word choice and different bodily actions, maybe saying the same exact thing. And that's where you can observe whether there's craving, desire, attachment or not. But it's your own mindfulness that's going to help you to see that more and more clearly and also through your bodily actions and the other things that I talked about as well. Thank you, sir. Uh, it doesn't appear there are any more questions at this time. All right. Well, we just have one more chapter and we're done for today. Okay. For chapter 10, uh, let's go to Jan. Thank you, Miranda. Incapable of growth, increase and maturity in the teachings and discipline. Monks, when a cattle worker possesses 11 factors, he is incapable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. What 11? Here, a cattle worker has no wisdom of form. He is unskilled in characteristics. He fails to remove flies' eggs. He fails to dress wounds. He fails to smoke out the sheds. He does not know the watering place. He does not know what it is to have drunk. He does not know the road. He is unskilled in pastures. He milks dry and he shows no extra veneration to those bulls who are fathers and leaders of the herd. When a cattle worker possesses these 11 factors, he is incapable of keeping and caring for a herd of cattle. So too monks, when a monk possesses 11 qualities, he is incapable of growth, increase, and maturity in these teachings and discipline. What, 11? Here a monk has no wisdom of form. He is unskilled in characteristics. He fails to remove flies' eggs. He fails to dress wounds. He fails to smoke out the sheds. He does not know the watering place. He does not know what it is to have drunk. He does not know the road. He is unskilled in pastures. He milks dry and he shows no extra veneration to those elder monks of long standing who have long gone forth, the fathers and leaders of the community. How does a monk fail to remove flies' eggs? Here, when a thoughtful desire has arisen, a monk tolerates it. He does not abandon it, remove it, do away with it, and obliterate it. When a thought of ill will has arisen, when a thought of harming has arisen, evil, unwholesome states have arisen, among tolerates it. He does not abandon it, remove it, do away with it, and obliterate it. That is how a monk fails to remove flies' eye, eggs. How does a monk fail to dress wounds? Here, unseeing a form with the eye, a monk grasps, grasps at its signs and features. Even though when he leaves, the eye sends base unguarded, evil and wholesome states of craving and aversion might invade him. He does not practice the way of its restraint. He does not guard the eye sense base. He does not undertake the restraint of the eye facility. On hearing a, a sound with the ear, on smelling an odor with the nose, on tasting a flavor with the tongue, on touching a physical object with the body, on recognizing a mental object with the mind, he grasps at its signs and features. Even though when he leaves the mind sense space unguarded, evil and wholesome states of craving and aversion might invade him, he does not practice the way of its restraint. He does not guard the mind sense space. He does not undertake the restraint of the mind sense space. That is how a monk fails to dress wounds. 
All right. Thank you, Jan. So here, this is just the opposite of the one that we saw before. He's talking about how to ensure that you don't grow on this path to enlightenment. And essentially what he's talking about is someone who's complacent in these two factors that he's talking about here that are included, is that if somebody has a thought of central desire, of ill will, or a thought of harming, then the mind just kind of tolerates it, allows it to be there, that we don't take right effort to abandon and eliminate that. That's what he's talking about here, somebody who's complacent. So we can be complacent about our meditation practice and not actually meditate. That can be complacency. We cannot study these teachings, which that can be complacency. But even if you're studying these teachings and even if you're meditating and you observe a central thought arising, a thought of ill will, a thought of harming, and you don't take active action to apply right effort and eliminate that unwholesome mental state, that's complacency as well. And he talks about it down here as well with seeing a form or any other contact through the six sense spaces that if we allow the mind to grasp and yearn and long through these sense spaces and the mind is unguarded, there's no mindfulness there, this is complacency as well. And it would be a practitioner's demise or they would be incapable of actually progressing further on this path to enlightenment if they reside and continue to reside in this complacency. So where you see the mind longing through these sense spaces, you need to take action. You need to apply right effort to eliminate that, that mind longing through these six sense spaces. That's what's going to knock down the central desire. That's how you eliminate the fetter of central desire. That where you see the mind longing, you yank it back and you yank it back. If you remember that post or pillar that the Buddha talks about, where he talks about these six animals pulling in different directions, and as they pull toward the sky, the birds pulling there, the alligators pulling to the river, the monkeys pulling to the jungle, and so forth and so on, they get to the end of their rope and they get pulled back and pulled back and pulled back, and eventually they just stay by that post or pillar. That's what you're doing in meditation. You're training the mind as the mind moves off the breath. You pull it back and pull it back and pull it back. So then in daily life, when these six sense spaces, the mind is longing and yearning through these six sense spaces, you can pull it back and pull it back and pull it back. And doing that over a consistent long-term period of time is what ultimately eliminates central desire from the mind. Any questions on this? It appears there are no questions at this time, sir. All right. Well, I'll just end by thanking all of you for joining for today's class and suggest that you read chapters 11 through 20 for the next class. Those are the next 10 chapters that we're going to be studying. And if you would like to download this book, you can get it from buddhadailywisdom.com. From there, if you would like a printed version or a Kindle version, you can also get those on Amazon or you can just take it and print it yourself. And we'll cover chapters 11 through chapters 20. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're going to be studying the Eightfold Path. We're in that mental discipline. That's really connects really well with what we've studied today because there's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which is where you start training the mind. The Eightfold Path is giving you a 
beginning understanding and a foundation of this mental discipline where this particular book is taking you further into it to really understand what it is that you're building mental discipline around. And the reason why that you're building this mental discipline as part of the Eightfold Path is because there's these longing through these sense spaces that the mind has. So we'll be exploring that as part of the group learning program tomorrow. And then Wednesday, we're going to be doing our third class of our four-part series of breathing mindfulness meditation. So you're welcome to join for that as well. So I'll see you guys either next Saturday, perhaps Sunday and Wednesday. In the meantime, have a very lovely rest of your day. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment. Enlightenment.